today comes from chapter 1 of Genesis. You can follow me on the screens behind you or in the Blue Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Sorry, 26. We amended that. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the, sorry, every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So in the reading of God, God's word, those eighteen months through. Uh, kindergarten, our announcements to t- uh, Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Happy New Year to you. Blessings on what 2024 promises to be. Would you pray with me as we seek God's face for this passage? Speak to us, Lord, at the end of 2023 and prepare us for the year to come. Strengthen us with courage and boldness and faith to go into the relationships the ministries, the jobs and callings that you've given to us with your biblical vision reverberating in our ears and shining before our eyes and warming in our hearts. Help us to love your good design for nature and the world and for each of us and for all churches on the planet, including this one, and for time itself and for every human being. Instruct us now from the most foundational of passages in all the Bible, Genesis 1. Help us to see something of your glory here and something of the glory of Christ and something of your great love for us to cause us to come under the shower of your blessing. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When I asked the Lord at the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024, what would he have me say? How do I encourage the faith family at the landing? How do I strengthen my own heart and and my own family and those who listen by live stream? And how do we set our minds and fix our eyes on God and his glory in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, with his spirit poured out for 2024? I was struck by this vision and this image of God as as high and exalted like mountain peaks that are so high, they're shielded by clouds. We can't see them, but we know they're there. And yet in the valleys between those mountain peaks, the snows that God allows to come out of those hiding clouds of his glory form into glaciers. And those glaciers come down and they give us pure glacier water in which to drink and to grow all good things. That vision is what I have in mind as the way I understand the passage Kevin just read, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. I want to show you in just a few minutes five mountain peaks shielded by God's glorious clouds. But those very clouds cause snow to fall on those peaks and those peaks come running down in glaciers of pure blue ice and water that melts for us not only to drink but to engage in and be refreshed in and to use for work and for flourishing and for growth and even for floating gospel ships of salvation on. Many years ago, my family and I, even before Ruthie came along, our son Ben was was only six years old and my wife Kathy and I traveled to visit family for a wedding up in Alaska and we traveled on one of those those cruises, day cruises, where you go out in a in an inlet off the Pacific to uh, sail a large ship, there was about three, four hundred of us on this ship, up into that inlet right alongside where those glaciers come down between those high mountain peaks 
in Alaska. It was a glorious image. We were chasing otters and we saw a, a few orca in, in a distance. And then over the intercom and the loudspeaker, the captain said, if you'll look off to your left side, the port side of the boat, you will see uh, a large glacier and, and we think it's about to calve. And we thought, okay, this ought to be great, whatever a glacier calving means. And he said, there's going to be a piece of ice, maybe the size of a car or even the size of a house coming off this glacier. Just keep watching. And we watched for a long time. Nothing happened. So then I was chasing Ben around on the deck. He was six years old. He had a blast and we had a fun time. And all of a sudden, the captain's excited voice came over. You, you know when they're talking about something out of the ordinary because they're not just giving you the normal speech. They were very, the captain was very excited. He said, look, look, it's calving right now. And so we all looked to the left. In fact, the whole boat is kind of leaning because everybody's rushing to the left side. And there was this huge piece of ice the size of a house. And he said, this is why we have to stay three miles away from the glacier. Because he says, in just a few minutes, the, the, the waves are going to rock this boat. So we waited a few minutes and all of a sudden we were just rolling in this inlet, this huge boat full of people. And everybody was grasping onto something to stand steady in the boat that had been rocked by this calved off glacier. When you look at Genesis chapter one, especially the passage just briefly that Kevin read, you see five glories. It's, it's, it's as if five mountains are allowing their glaciers to creep down. And at a moment of only God's knowing, it's as if they calve off this massive piece of ice that causes the very waters in which we float to rise. And we're safe. We're safe three miles away on this boat, this gospel ship of salvation, where we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And for the fulfillment of all the promises he has for us, even eternal life. And yet it's glorious, it's powerful, it's breathtaking, it's even fear producing. This water that we float on is both a wonder and a blessing to us, God's glory, but it's also a danger. We have to have the ship on which we ride safely upon this water. We realize we're just a bobber. That God's glory is moving and it's strong. And that if, if you or I were to read the, the glorious mountain peaks and the glacier ice that's calved off and we were to say, I don't want that. I reject that. I'm going to step aside from what I see in Genesis 1 and I choose my own path. Then inevitably the curse falls on that person. The curse falls. In fact, that's what happened with Adam and Eve, and it's why the curse is even in the world at all. It's because there, there are persons, human beings, Adam and Eve, the, the two at the beginning, and the rest of us have followed suit in committing sin. We've said, God, we see your design. We see your design in nature. We see your design in the word of God. We see your design in all the, of our relationships, and we don't like it. It's too hard. It's impossible. It's not who I am. It's not my DNA. It's not my personality. It's not my desires. It's not what I want. And so we go another way. We're under the curse when we talk that way and think that way. I'm a special case. Everybody else can do that. But for me, I'm a special case. That's what the curse sounds like. The blessing God wants us to shower ourselves under is to stand on the deck of this boat and to say, those high clouds shrouding the mountain peaks have snowed and over time and in God's perfect design, they have formed themselves in those blue ice rivers that come down in the form of glaciers. And that very water is the water that I need to drink and the water that cleanses me and the water that fills up the Pacific Ocean and more with the glory of the Lord. And that's what I was made for. Why celebrate the image of God now? You might be sitting here thinking, what drew Pastor Brent to talk from Genesis 1 on the image of God at the end of 2023, launching into 2024? Here are simple answers. In the last several years, I don't know about you, but I see all kinds of confusion, marginalization, even even uh, twisting and distorting of these beautiful realities 
And I don't think the church, in fact, I don't think I have been fully prepared to give right and good and strong answers. And so I'm speaking to myself to say, remind yourself of what is glorious and true that everyone needs to know, no matter what place or time or ethnicity or nation or country or life experience you come from. These are true for everyone all the time. And they're so steadying and strengthening. It's again like this, like a deep keel on this big old ship. You can rock the boat all you want with massive waves of uneasiness, even chaos. And the ship of the gospel and the truth of God's glory stays steady. That's one reason. Second reason, Pastor Andrew and I love to talk theology together. At least I love it. <laughs> and he's patient with me. I love to talk about the glory of God, and we talk about big topics like theological anthropology. We went to a conference in November. We talk about this all the time. We think about it. It's in the news all the time. People are asking questions about it. There's constantly debates going on, books being written, people uh, putting out podcasts and thinking about this. There's so much to talk about in this grand area of who we are as image bearers of God. So I've been thinking and talking with Pastor Andrew about this for a long, long time. It seems so fitting and right to say this at the end of 2023. And a third reason is this. I think the landing is in the offing awaiting significant, exciting new developments and growth this year. I think new ministries are growing. I think our dreams of church planting are going to take place and take shape. That means dreams of leadership development and building up and preparing more leaders. I think there's there's something God wants us to do to help make this building even more suitable for the vision that God has captured our hearts with. And that calls for a venture of faith and it calls for the development of new leaders and it calls for the crying out in prayer for God to supply what we do not yet have in hand. I think there are new inroads of love and of grace into Duluth. And the Northland, I think there are new ministries to all species of widow and orphan that we encounter in the world around us. I think there are new and exciting things happening in many of our lives. Some of you are going to get married this year. Some of you are going to have children this year. Some of you are going to launch out in a missionary enterprise this year. Some of you are going to launch a new ministry or join one you've never been a part of before. Some of you are going to take risks in your relationships to go deeper in love and in openness and in one another commands being fulfilled. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Look with me to Genesis 1. I want to show you what's here. How it's summarized in a glorious way and then five peaks and how each of them stand is a beautiful blessing if we come under them and receive from them and let the let the waters of the glacier bless us and how the curse falls when we refuse them. You know, this passage has gained a famous reputation. It's probably one of the most influential passages in all the Bible. It's called the creation mandate or sometimes called the dominion mandate. You can see it so plainly in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Who did he say that to? Adam and Eve. But all humanity, all humanity are commanded. That's why this is called a creation mandate. This is for every human being in every place. Eden was not designed to be a utopian biosphere where Adam and Eve, before sin came, just got to frolic in there all day long, satisfying personal private pleasures. That's not what Eden was for. Eden was always a place for God's blessing to fall. You see that at the beginning of verse 28. And God blessed them. How did he bless them? He blessed them by giving them a command. Adam and Eve, the way I made you is I made you to be fruitful and multiply. I made you to fill the earth with other little Adams and Eves who look like you because you bear my image. And then everybody's going to see God all over the earth. That's called a blessing when God gives the command. And before sin comes into the world, we love to hear God's commands. God's commands are a joy to us. After sin comes into the world, 
we get a little huffy and a little proud and a little annoyed at God's commands. We don't like them one bit. We bristle and resist at his sovereign right to tell us what to do. But his commands are always good and always for our good. It's like going to OMC. Piping hot. Cornbread and ribs and brisket and all the sauces and the sweet potatoes and the beans. And the waitress comes out and puts right in front of you the plate, just like you ordered it and says, enjoy. And you say, a little bossy today, aren't we? And she looks down at you like, what is your problem? Annoyed with you. I just told you a command to enjoy it. Yes, but I don't like being told what to do. That's how we relate to God's commands. We bristle, we resist, we recoil, we're annoyed with him. You don't get to tell us what to do, God. But what he told us what to do here in Genesis 1 is enjoy everything that I have made for you. It's a command of love. You can tell it's a command of blessing because verse 28 begins with, and God blessed them. What that means is this. When God says blessing, he means I'm giving you something of myself. That's what blessing means. I give you something of myself. He's giving us his image. We are morally and spiritually and in our identity looking like God. And before sin comes into the world, we were a very clean, shiny mirror that God looked at and saw himself in us. It was beautiful. It's the way the redemption we find in Jesus Christ is restoring us back to and what we'll enjoy forever in heaven. But this is before the fall. This is when God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, ah, very good. Why? Because I see me in you. I see me in you, says God. His command then to go be fruitful and multiply is I want to see beautiful reflections of myself all across the world, for I am the most worthy of all beings to be worshipped and all will find their greatest joy maximized in worshiping me. God's dominion mandate or creation mandate comes to us here in Genesis 1:28 as a good command of blessing. And then he describes in five words, five specific words, how to stand under those blessings. And yet, if we refuse to, the warnings of the curse will fall. The first one I see, the first mountain generating a beautiful blue glacier for our blessing is in verse 26. The word I attach to it is simply subdue, subdue. Look at verse 26 with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This dominion, this subduing is a picture of what the image of God looks like on us. He rules in sovereign ownership over all he has made, and he calls us to be deputized as vice regents to rule with him. We are indeed men and women called by being made in his image to subdue and rule and have dominion over everything that God has made. We don't have dominion over the stars and over the sun and over the heavens, but we have dominion over the things that are on the earth. Fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, livestock over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is a glorious design for humanity. We are to subdue all that God has created. We are to be so in touch with him, so aware of him, so trusting in him, loving and adoring him that we know exactly how he would have us manage and steward his earth. You see the two way connection. We're to have dominion over all creation. We're to use it for God's glory because we know what his glory is. We already have a relationship with us. He's our sovereign and he has made us his vice regents, his co 
rulers over the world. We do so at a far lesser degree because we're part of the world. We're created into it. We don't rule in equality with him, but we know him and we love him and we know his ways and his values and his glory. So we steward the world in the same way he does. Here's a wonderful picture of this stewardship. If you think about Genesis and let your mind go further, you realize that in Genesis chapter nine, the very same command to be fruitful and multiply and and to subdue and have dominion over the earth comes to Noah in Genesis nine, one through seven. The very same command, and it's repeated there twice. Noah subdued the earth. He had dominion over it. How did he do it? He had a family, but he also was in close communion with God. In fact, the Bible says Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. And out of this grace, he had this intimacy of obedience. So he's submitting to God and out of that turns then to the world around him. And now the, the, the curse of sin has fallen and yet he's still subduing the earth. How does he do that? He goes and cuts down trees. Just as God commands, he he turns those trees into wood with which to make an ark, a ship. And he does so because there's evil on the earth after the fall has occurred. And God has told him to rescue and save all those who would come in by faith to join him on the ark while God brings a flood to destroy the whole of the earth. That's the subduing. Moses, the author, has in mind way back in Genesis chapter one. Only the subduing in Genesis chapter one is a subduing without sin having entered the world yet. Think about that. It means that the very world that the Lord created with its day and its night and its light and its dark, its land and its sea, its animals, its its principles of of gravity and all the other realities that God has created into the world as it is. These need subduing. They need developing. They need human beings to come along and lay hands upon the materials and begin to use them and strengthen them and build them into something that serves others and glorifies God. That's what Noah did as Noah subdued. Even the difficulties with rain and water and all the horrors of the flood so that he and his family might live. There's something that rises up inside every human being to say, I wasn't just made to be a bobber on the ocean of the world. I was made to raise and strengthen beautiful children as their mother. I was made to to do well at my work and in my my creating, my speaking, my sermon writing or my artistry or my architecture or my finance investing or my development of land or my entrepreneurial expansion of businesses or my physical uh, labor or my being a lawyer or a doctor or an administrative person or 10,000 others. There's something glorious about our command to subdue the earth as it is and offer it back to the Lord and say, Lord, I know this will please you because I have a close intimate relationship with you. To stand against that subduing is to fall into a kind of confusion a kind of laziness, a kind of rejection of God's design, a kind of I don't know, whatever, a kind of directionless hopelessness that that really, as it, as it catches a, a formal term, it's really something we should call nihilism. That is, nothing matters and nothing has meaning. Sadly, I see that on the rise. I wonder if you do, too. I don't just see it in entertainment and in popular culture. I see it on the Internet. I see it even among Christians. Nothing matters. This is all a confusing mess. Nothing matters. Don't let yourself fall into that error. Stand firm. Come near. Stand in the gospel ship floating on the water that's been enlarged by the calving of this blue ice off of God's glorious mountain glacier and say, Lord, I want to stand in the blessing you have for me. What in 2024 do you want me to subdue? What is it in my job or in my life, in my relationship, in my family, in my finances? 
in my understanding of my own identity or my sex life? What is it in my thinking, in my view of myself, in my view of you, in my view of of, of the world and how I engage with the world that will subdue this world you've made and bring you glory in it? These are deep questions, aren't they? Look at the second mountain. This this word is just simply captured by marriage. I get it from verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God says, I'm going to make man in my image, the, the, the divine image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to make them in such a way That they all bear my image fully. Men and women bear the image of God fully. And they bear the image of God differently. And there are only two sexes. Never more, never less. Beautiful, strong women bearing the image of God fully. Sacrificial, initiative-taking, strong men bearing the image of God fully. Neither has the right or or ever permission to look down upon the other. Nor boast about the other. Both bring complementary capacities and needs. Why? So that together they would recognize we are always weak, even when we are at our best. God is always strong. Even the way nature exists, that there is male and female, reminds us of our weakness, need of each other and need of him. And therefore, he, the supplier of all strength, gets all the glory. If you step away from this glacier of blue, clear, life-giving water and try to pervert it in some way. Death will always be the result. Harm will always be the result. Unbelief will always be the result. There's a blessing that comes from recognizing that each of the 27 trillion cells in your body were put there by God and given a sex, either man or woman. An identity. Our souls even have a maleness or a femaleness. In eternity... We will carry on in our new resurrected bodies, our maleness and our femaleness. It's what God's calls very good. Remember, this is all before sin enters the world. This is the beautiful picture. Of a dance. Kings and queens in a grand ball. The strength of the man shows off the grace and the beauty of the woman. He leads not so that he might be stealing of all the power and authority and glory. Oh, no, no. But so that he might humble himself and serve and let her life giving, life affirming, life creating beauty shine forth. This might even sound so foreign to your ears because hardly anybody talks this way in our culture anymore because our culture has said, no, I don't want that blessing. I don't want that glorious mountain. I don't want the the fresh snows and the blue glacier purity water. I don't want to float my boat on the ocean filled up with that water. I would rather recreate as if I'm God, some new structure of multiple genders, which oddly have the effect of affirming the same two genders in the first place. Gain the blessing of walking in honor of God's good design for male and female and his good design ultimately for marriage between one man and one woman for life. Settling for anything less is the invitation of the curse upon your life and upon your community and those around you. And it never stops with you. It's always metastasizing into others. There's no such thing as private sin. The third mountain and glacier that stems from it is simply called family. Look at verse 28 close with me. We saw this already and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, male and female come together in a foretaste of Christ and the church coming together as the eternal and final marriage. And in this life, we come together and the ideal, the hope, the potentiality of each person is to say, I love the fact that families are formed. This is God's good design. Even single people can say, I love families. Even if I'm not personally called to it, I can affirm it. Widowed and widowers can say, what a beautiful blessing this is. Even children This is God's good design to stand in affirmation and protection of the family is wise and good and filled with blessing. Whoever blesses the family, God blesses to stand against it. Is to come into sorrow and loss, jealousy, doubt, fear, anger, violence, murder, death. Men, I would speak to you in the application of this third mountain glorious called family. Some of you are waiting. Some of you are not sure whether you are fully transferred from boy to man. There's nothing in between. And the call of God upon your life is step up, find a wife, get married. If you need any help, I'll help you with that. Press into it. Begin to pray that way. Be the Boaz who looks for your Ruth. I have one, but you'd have to get past my shotgun. Don't wait. Build a family. Genesis 1 and the, and the blessing of of. The glory of God, mountainous and high beyond our our seeing and knowing, coming down in the beauty of this this clear blue glacier and filling up the ocean on which the gospel boat that you ride on floats. That is what you were made for. Men, you were not made to pretend to lead. You were made to lead. You were made to be bold. Come right into this mountain and subdue what you're called to subdue and and to celebrate a, a relationship with a woman who you can serve and sacrifice yourself for in such a way that she sees you're connected to God. You see that, men, don't you? That what every woman wants to see in you is not your own individual virtue, but how you're connected to God. She, sees to, she has to see that you're white hot for God and love him infinitely more than you love her. Otherwise, she's afraid you'll just use her and she'll be right. Fourth mountain captured by the word work. Look at verses 29 through 30. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. Plants and seeds imply orchards and picking and fruit and work. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so this is work. You get food from all the wildlife and and livestock and plants and fruits of the earth by work. This is a call to work. Twice in these verses, Adam here and all humanity are instructed to reap and to sow and to gather from the earth. This is before sin makes it painful and difficult. All the good riches and delicious plants and fruits and trees and food the Lord has provided. So in Genesis 2, Adam is placed right in the middle of the garden and he's told to work it. He's working here. Not because God wants to step back and do nothing while he's watching Adam work, but because God is a worker. So we who are in his image, we subdue and we rule over like God does. We who are in his image, we affirm and delight in male and female like God has created. And we who are in his image, we love to build families and take wives and and, and marry and, and cause generation after generation to continue on filling the earth with God's glory. But we who are made in the image of God and love it, we don't chafe under it, but we pursue it and love it. We will work. Solomon, David's son, said this in Ecclesiastes 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also, I say, is from the Lord, from the hand of the Lord, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. You see, work is morally good. You might have lived in Duluth long enough to know of a place called Mel's TV and Audio. Some of you laugh. There used to be Mel's TV and Audio. I used to be a salesperson there. How would you like to buy this television? It has color. Not quite that old, but similar. I hated that job. I hated talking people into buying TV sets. I didn't like it one bit. Complained about it constantly. Just before I was married. This was 1984. And I remember being on my break in the back room one day saying, Lord, I hate this job, but I don't think that you want me to. So please forgive me for hating this job. Give me a heart of thanks for this job. I thank God for you. I thank God for my for my engaged fiance, Kathy Hammerstrom. I thank you so much for um, my salvation. Please help me to be thankful for this job. I can remember the uh, sofa I was sitting on, the vinyl sofa in the break room. I can remember the the uh, calendar that was on the wall. I can remember things around it. You have those experiences. And I went out that door and walked down the hall and I was ready to do that job with joy. I don't know why, except the spirit of God answered my prayer. Thankfully, I got married and got rid of that job real quick. Got on to other things. God calls every human being not only to work, but to work as a moral good because God is a worker. God is the one who made the world. God is the one who labors and calls us to labor with him. Even in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, in the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ comes back and conquers all evil, the devil and sin, it says, He, Christ, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You use a plowshare for work. And their spears into pruning hooks, which you use for work as well. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. May it be, Lord Jesus. Pruning hooks and plowshares are work tools. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, we will work. I want everyone in this room to realize that it is a lie from the pit of hell to think you have to be a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, or a theologian to be doing God's work. Back in the Reformation, 500 years ago, confused religions would separate workers in the church from workers out in the world. And they created a division that's not in the Bible called sacred and secular. It's not there. It's unholy. When the spirit of God settles upon a people and he uses them to to create Aaron's robes. or, Or to bring in materials to build buildings or to do metalwork to make them beautiful. When civil engineers do oil borings or when architects draw plans or when investment bankers help handle money in a solvent and honorable way, when, when doctors make the incision, when dentists help you with your teeth and when lawyers help you navigate good laws, When administrative people help you communicate and and make arrangements as is necessary and beneficial. When 10,000 other things happen, God and his spirit are being depended upon and his name is being glorified. The person who delivers milk and the person who farms and the the person who works in any capacity of any sort. the, The business entrepreneur, the street cleaner, the chef, the police. Computer coders, statisticians, scientists, and thousands of others. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Think of how beautiful it would be if the church was overwhelmed by this idea that the Holy Spirit was as powerful in every vocation as he sometimes is and is graciously willing to be inside these walls. 
it leads to the conclusion that Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, those whose image is marred by sin, but yet they're being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and sanctified, they'll be diligent in their jobs, no matter what they will be, faithful and cheerful. They'll always come to work for their boss and they will always do what's expected and one little bit more to say, Lord, I'm working unto your honor and glory. Work is good, it's morally good, and every one of you do work that God finds as beautiful and as honorable as anything any pastor, evangelist, missionary, or theologian ever does. Finally, the mountain bearing a glacier from which we drink deeply and ride high on the gospel ship is called very good. You saw this in verse 31, and God saw everything that he made. God's the maker, the worker of all. And behold, it is very good. There was evening and there was morning in the sixth day. God delights in what he made. He enjoys the fruit of his labor. He rests. Defining himself by enjoyment in all that he has made. Let me read ahead for you in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is what God says of himself and his own work. Thus, the heavens of the and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God doesn't rest because he's tired. He doesn't need an iced tea. God is not resting because he's run out of energy or his heart is beating too fast or his muscles got quivery. No, God is resting in the sense that you and I are called to rest even while we work. And that is to overflow with approval and thanksgiving and enjoyment of all that we've made. I have lots of people in my life who have worked very hard and they have found that right balance between rest Time with family, time when reading and in prayer in the word, time in scripture daily and time in in family uh, prayers gathered with hands held and sharing prayer requests and praying out some word of hope. Vacation times, enjoyment times, playing catch times, sports times, enjoying good movies together or reading good books together and and the work that calls for a hard, diligent focus. I must do this. I have a deadline. I must do it as expected, yet one little bit more so that it might be an offering unto the Lord. I've had many people in my life model that well for me. I feel a certain desire, a deep desire. Maybe you do too, to model that well for those around us. But as soon as you hear God say, I'm looking at Adam, I'm looking at Eve, I'm looking at all the people, even after a a sin enters into the world. I'm looking at all that I have made and I call it very good. You, you, You feel the tension immediately, don't you? You know that God looks upon you and your family, you and your friends, you and your co-workers, you and this church family. And you know it's good. You know this is a beautiful church and you are beautiful people to me and to the Lord. You know God's blessing of yes, very good is on us. But you also feel the the quiet tension rising up within you. And I bet you felt it already several times today even. That Romans 3, 10 through 12 is also true. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. There's an unbearable tension between God saying, yes, I created you and you are beautiful. You are very good and no one does good. You feel the tension? How do we answer the tension? We either answer the tension by saying. The very good human beings who have not done good with the goodness that they are must pay for that in an eternity of hell. Or we cry out to God for a savior who will save us from the marring, polluting, distorting effects of the fall upon our very goodness made in God's image. 
We need a savior who would come and not just save us from our sins, but come and fulfill the commands of the image of God fully in himself. Jesus Christ came into the world and before the foundation of the world, redeemed us from the curse of sin. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ comes into the world and he's the perfect regent who subdues everything around him. He's hanging on the cross and he's subduing. He's teaching he's, and he's subduing. He's, he's, he's feeding Thousands with fish and bread and he's subduing. He's subduing all throughout his life and his ministry. And he shows us exactly what it looks like to do so. He does so perfectly. He comes into the world bearing the image of God. And and he affirms and honors and blesses men and women and marriage. And even says, I'm the husband of my bride, the church. And when I die on the cross, it's my bringing her to myself forever. He perfectly fulfills the call to beget adopted children and grow the family of God by bringing all the children through faith in himself to the father. Such that not one is left as an orphan. He perfectly fulfills the charge to work for he's constantly doing the works of the father, obeying him perfectly and all his works remain. When the seed of the woman who is Christ, Eve, who fell back in Genesis three, the seed of the woman who is Christ overtakes the seed of the spirit, who is the devil. Work is not done away with, but rather it is elevated up to its rightful place of worship. Image bearing becomes a joy. All our work becomes worship and family becomes a sweet blessing, a secure place of joy and and relationships between male and female are honored and purified. We become, as it were, brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoicing in one another in all purity. And we subdue the world, building and strengthening everything to offer back to God as an offering. And our work is a true joy. Listen to the way Paul Way at the end of the Bible, 1 Timothy 6, at the end of Paul's life, borrows the vocabulary of Genesis 1 to teach Timothy and us a great lesson by the Spirit. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Marriage and friends and life and family, food and the earth, our, our, our work and our callings, our activity, visions and goals and dreams to subdue and conquer. All these God richly supplies them to us to enjoy. They are to do good. Paul writes in verse 18 to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He means the kind of person who, though his image of God is marred and darkened by sin, has been redeemed. And they'll begin to live this way. They'll pursue the good works and they'll say, this is the this is the work God is doing in me, which is the very foundation of my eternal life. The glacier has calved off five times with blue Ice that has built up the very water on which the gospel ship we ride in floats and it becomes our very joy, our washing, our drinking, our delight. Our rich flourishing on the earth. I call the landing and I call myself. And I call everyone in the hearing of my voice to reorder your life around Genesis one. Meditate on it. We've only had brief glimpses of it. If you don't know. What it's like to have the image of God being restored in your life. Receive Christ. Just receive him. Just say, Lord, you died on the cross for my sins, my darkened life. Please receive me as I receive you. Simple prayer, Lord. Take me. I take you.
If you have received and you are under redeeming grace, take dominion over your life. This is what the fruit of the spirit calls self-control. This is where you're laying hold of what's next. Pursue it white hot with zeal. Christians are never passive and languishing. We're the active ones. We're out on the cutting edge. We're out on the tip of the spear. We're moving forward. We're bold. Let's build something. Let's establish something. Let's proclaim the gospel further, clearer, stronger, sweeter. Even at greater cost. And wherever you are, wherever the day after the holiday finds you, work hard for Christ. You'll go back to your houses today. There's no lunch at the landing. We'll greet each other. We'll spend some time enjoying conversation with each other. You'll head off. Some of you will come back because there's going to be two magnificent baptisms tonight. And you'll come back and you'll say, I want to see this. I want to be on the edge of this. I want to show up for this. And many of you will come to celebrate the obedience of baptism. Lay hold of whatever God has given you and work hard with all your might, knowing the same favor that rests upon us at the close of the service rests upon you in your work at school. In your in your in your bedroom at home. In in the corner of the basement, you never want to attend to because the junk just collects there. In your garage, in the hard places at work. In the tasks that await you online. Work hard as unto the Lord. It's what you were made for. Pray with me, would you? Thank you, Father, for Genesis 1. Thank you for the high mountain peaks and the many questions unanswered. Beg and invite us to discover more about you. Thank you for the great enjoyment you've called us to have in our work. In being men and women. In being families. In subduing the earth. And being made in your image. Thank you for these glorious high truths. I pray that you would bless them to us and strengthen them in us and clarify them for us that we could be useful in not only living them out, but proclaiming them to a world that has headlong refused this blessing. And they are reaping the consequences of their rejection of Genesis one. Oh, Lord, may the landing be as swift to go out body of people and proclaim the redemption that's found in Christ and a very, very, very safe and soft landing for those coming back. Maybe the best metaphor for the name of our church of all. The soft and and safe place for repentant ones to come back to the blessing. Thank you, Lord, so much for the way you will help us with these things. We anticipate the challenge. We know these are high and glorious realities. Come by your spirit and enable us to live these out. And for any in this room who have never known what it's like for the darkened image to be redeemed, would you draw them to yourself just now as we sing in response to your word of our joy in Jesus name. Amen. Stand with me, would you, as we close our service?